You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Psalm 10. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked arrogantly hunt down the poor. Let them be caught in their evil, in the evil they plan for others. For they brag about their evil desires. They praise the greedy and curse the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since God does not exist. Yet they succeed in everything they do. They do not see your punishment awaiting them. They sneer at all their enemies. They think nothing bad will ever happen to us. We'll be free from trouble forever. Their mouths are full of cursing, lies, and threats. Trouble and evil are on the tips of their tongues. They lurk and ambush in the villages, waiting to murder innocent people. They are always searching for helpless victims, like lions. Crouching and hiding, they wait to pounce on the helpless. Like hunters, they capture the helpless and drag them away in nets. Their helpless victims are crushed. They fall beneath the strength of the wicked. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted and oppressed. Why do the wicked get away with despising God? They, they think God will never call us to account. This may seem like an odd reading for Resurrection Sunday. I get that. But what I was also getting all week long were emails from many of you. Facebook messages in my inbox from several of you. Messages from my friends on Facebook that aren't connected to our body here. Messages from my friends who aren't even connected to the resurrection of Jesus. All asking me, because they know I happen to be a minister, a pastor, to pray. To pray because they feel like the world is on the edge of chaos. To pray because during Holy Week... Just during Holy Week, we, we heard about the death of 47 Coptic Christians in Egypt. And then we hear about more death in Syria. And we see faces stained with tears that flow from a heartache unimaginable. We hear about the world seemingly spinning out of control from the missile tests in North Korea to the mother of all bombs falling on terror cells in Afghanistan feeling as though the world is just turning in against itself. They would email me asking me about things like national health care to various forms of human equality as if there was something else that we just needed to debate as always something is threatening to place a wedge between us and our neighbors. Received a few messages even from friends telling me about those stricken by a new diagnosis to those struggling with depression or others learning to live with unexpected life change and how they're seeing the sadness and the pain, and at times feeling helpless for the lives of people they know. I've listened to many of my friends this week, many of you, lamenting what was going on in the world, and I felt that it was appropriate that our hearts be open to see what's really going on. But it took me back. It took me back to try and figure out what it all means. It, it, it took me back to a time when I found myself a few years ago sitting in a courtroom just outside of Richmond. 
may seem a bit trite to you, but as a dad and as a Christian who believes in resurrection, this experience that I had a few years ago stands even today as a sort of parable to me. I was there to support a friend as he awaited the just consequence for driving without a license. We didn't know how long we would be there. We just knew that we would be there for quite a while and suspected it would be a long morning. I don't know if you have ever been in a courtroom, but they are often cold and quiet. Most of the time, the seating is very uncomfortable, reminding you of pews from a country church. The only voices heard in a courtroom are usually the attorney's judge, the accused, and if necessary, a witness. Outside of that, everyone must sit in absolute silence. So there I sat in this courtroom just outside of Richmond. On this day, the usual voices were heard, the usual pews were found, and the usual temperature was cold. I suppose this experience would not have been so odd were it not for the young boy sitting with his father. He couldn't have been much older than six. The expression on his face was one of sadness and grief as he mostly sat there, nestled into his father's chest. He had his head bowed low as if the life had been sucked from his six-year-old little body. His father, a handsome, clean-cut man, sat closely beside his son. The young boy was there that day to see his mama, but she wasn't there, at least not in person. She was in jail paying the price for her crime of selling and distributing methamphetamine. And today was her day of sentencing. And though she wasn't physically there, she was present. You could see and hear her through a live feed coming from a 32-inch black and white television placed near the judge's bench. The young boy sitting there in this cold courtroom beside his father only see his mother through a television dressed in her prison uniform with handcuffs around her wrist. And so, yeah, as I sat, I, as I sat listening to the usual voices in this courtroom, I confess to you that I became frustrated. As I received emails and Facebook messages this week and heard the stories on the news, I confess to you that I became frustrated. Frustrated at a world where young boys have to sit in cold courtrooms and see their mamas sitting in jail through a 32-inch television. Frustrated at a world where lives are destroyed by addictions and families are fractured by the world's brokenness. Came frustrated at a world where sin and death continues to affect all of us in countless and unimaginable ways. Came frustrated at a world where people are trying to gather for worship and bombs go off. Where people are walking down streets playing soccer and bombs fall. And it's times like this that I and obviously some of you and some of my other friends needed a voice, right? We long for a voice. We, we, we yearn for something to disrupt the brokenness, to interrupt the brokenness and the chaos and the sad sinfulness and the hopelessness of a world that is living in rebellion to God with all of its fear and violence. And it's at times like these that I turn to the psalmist and, and I need a voice. And the psalmist often gives us a voice. And in this psalm that we read, there are two dominant voices. There's a voice like that of the little boy sitting in the courtroom or maybe you and I that is frustrated and desperate crying out for 
for God to God to hear them, or better yet, crying out for God to, to, to show up in the midst of all this. And then there's the other voice in the psalm, the voice of the wicked, the heartless, the rebellious ones who seek to do only what they want to do with no regard for others. But then in this same psalm, there's a voice that is painfully absent. It's the voice of God that can't be heard, that cannot be found. Where the psalmist cries out for God just to speak. He says to himself, God has forgotten, Psalm 10, 11. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted and oppressed. The psalmist is frustrated. Frustrated with the same world we live in, actually. And I'd like to think that the psalmist was frustrated for probably similar reasons that we often find ourselves frustrated. I don't know, maybe maybe he isn't frustrated then. Maybe he just wants change. Maybe he's just tired of seeing good things happen to people who are doing bad things all the time. Maybe he's tired of seeing bad things happen to people who seem to be doing good things. Maybe he's just tired of the world feeling as though it's spinning out of control, not even giving any regard to God. Maybe he's just tired and just is desperate for change, for God to do something, something he knows God can do. Maybe maybe the psalmist is longing for hope. Like I imagine that young boy was longing for hope or like the people living in Egypt or Syria are longing for hope. Or maybe like some of our neighbors or some of us even sitting here on this Easter Sunday longing for hope. But then in the psalm, you, you, you see the psalmist and his longing, he remembers in the midst of desperation or frustration, his speech turns. His speech turns and interrupts the complaint. Verse 14 interrupts it. It's, it's, it's a sort of interruption of hope, right? He says, but, but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. It's, it's an interruption of hope that's going to deal honestly with the grief in the world. It's going to deal honestly with the suffering. He's not going to explain it away. He's not going to say, give it to Jesus. He's not going to say, give it to God. He's not going to say, pray about it. He's going to be honest with it, but it interrupts to complain. And, and in its raw honesty, this interruption is an interruption of hope that doesn't deny the frustration or the emotions or the circumstances, and he musters up the courage to call to remembrance a greater and inalterable truth. And that is, gee, that is the Lord is still king. And he says, yeah, you yourself have seen the trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands, the helpless entrust himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless or the motherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil persons. Call his wickedness into account until nothing remains of it. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the men of the earth may terrify them no more. So that the little kids run along the roads of Syria, Worshiping in the buildings in Egypt. Be terrified no more. See, I'd imagine that the followers of Jesus almost 2,000 years ago felt more like verses 11 and 12 
came to that Friday and that Saturday night. That Saturday night when Jesus is dead. When he's been crucified. They gave up everything to follow him. Their homes, their vocations, even their religion. These dejected disciples had the courage sucked right out of them due to the deafening quiet of a Saturday night. It's holy Saturday. And they had heard how Jesus was mocked. They heard how he had been spat upon and how he was beaten to a bloody pulp. They heard how Jesus was forced to carry his own cross up this long hill with the help of just one man to be crucified for a crime he didn't commit. And they must have been confused, desperate, and perhaps even frustrated themselves. I mean, only a week ago they had watched Jesus come in to Jerusalem in this triumphal entry with crowds praising him, and now those same crowds turned and said, crucify him, and they did. And to make matters worse, most of these disciples, particularly of the twelve, minus John, abandoned Jesus in his final hours. So all that they had known had happened to Jesus came through what they had heard because they did not see it with their own eyes because in their frustration and fear they ran. And now he's dead. And they probably didn't remember Psalm 10 and the interruption of hope. They had no idea that God was about to write into their own psalm a different turn of speech. They didn't know what God was going to do that Sunday. They didn't know about, they didn't know about resurrection. And so in John 20, verse 1, it goes like this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And by the way, the one Jesus loved is John who happened to write this. Like he's like, you know, he and she ran to Peter and then me, Jesus' bestie. And she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Again, John wanting to passive-aggressively come at Peter, I guess, and let everybody know that he can outrun Peter. And stooping down, verse 5, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. He's honest with that. But then following him, Simon Peter came also, and of course we know he saw the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there and the wrapping that had been on the head of Jesus not lying with the linen cloths but was folded up in a separate place. And so when the other disciple who had reached the tomb first then entered the tomb, because we know Peter went in and they saw and believed. Even though, verse 9, they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead they knew something had changed. They knew something had interrupted the despair, the frustration. And so the disciples went home again. But I can't imagine the myriad of emotions swirling in the mind of the disciples when Peter and John get back and say, something's, something's changed, man. Something's changed. His body's not there and the linen cloths are folded over as if they took their sweet time. Something's changed. In verse 18, 
we hear what had changed. Because see, Mary, Mary Magdalene, a woman, was the first human being to proclaim the resurrected Jesus. Like, let that just sit. God could have appeared to anybody he'd have wanted to. He could have talked to any, any dude out there. He could have sent an angel, a little whisper. But no, he chose, he chose in a day when women were second-class citizens. He chose a woman to be the first proclaimer of the gospel. She says, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said. The Lord is risen. She says, it's resurrection. It's the first Easter. See, in our psalm, the psalmist and his interruption of hope sets his mind to a greater reality, a deeper truth. And this became his hope for new strength, new courage, and a new outlook on his life. And on that first Easter, the resurrection of Jesus stands as the greatest interruption of hope the world would ever see, one that would interrupt human history and inalterably change the past and the present and the future and the disciples' present and their future. The little boy in the courtroom, his present and his future, his mama's present and future, our present and future, this resurrection, this, this interruption of hope in a world it just seems to be crying out in hopelessness at times. It, this resurrection becomes an interruption of hope because it tells us that sin and death and all that's wrong in the world has been disrupted. I mean, we still feel it. We still smell it. We, we've got it on us still, right? But, but we know that the resurrection says that sin has been defeated. The chains of sin have been broken. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death will not have the final word. And in Christ overcoming sin and death, he reverses the curse, frees us from the reign of sin and death, and invites us into this thing, this new life, this new reign, this new world, this kingdom of God that is broken in, where he's making all things new. All that was made wrong due to sin and suffering and sickness and sorrow and grief and pain and betrayal and shame and fear, all of that, though it is still with us, it has ultimately, it has ultimately been defeated. It doesn't have to have the final word. So even in the midst of feeling the pain, there's an interruption of hope when we remember the resurrection. The resurrection is God's interruption of hope. It reminds us that there's a new life to be had now. There's a new way of seeing the world. If we choose to see it through a resurrected lens, we can still choose to see it through other forms of hope. But Peter, see the, the old guy who couldn't outrun John in the story, Peter writes a letter, and he wants us to see that it's not just any kind of hope. It's a living hope. Say living hope. So Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 13, he says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope. Say, set your hope. Set your hope. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this 
interruption of living hope reminds us that there is a hope that can push against despair, that there's a love that can drive out fear, that there's a peace that can stand underneath the weight of the chaos. There's a freedom that can never be taken away because there's a blood-stained cross at an empty tomb that says it's been secured. And the chaos of the world will have us believe something different. And yet we, as a people of the resurrection, we proclaim that this isn't just a dead hope. This isn't a one-time event kind of hope. This is a, a living hope. This is a hope that happens, not a hope that happened. This is a hope that can happen and that needs to happen every day of our lives. We remember because Jesus is risen and he is Lord, that you and I who have confessed him as Lord have been made citizens of a kingdom that's never going to falter, never fail, and will never be in trouble. That not even death will have the final word. See, as Christians, we believe in this living hope. And I realize that sometimes our actions betray our belief. But we believe in this living hope. We're a people of the resurrection. See, because when things happen like in Egypt where 47 Coptic Christians die, the priest of the Coptic Christian church preaches just yesterday. He says, thank you for killing us. That's what he says. He says to you who killed us, thank you for that because you put us to Jesus sooner. He not only says, thank you for killing us, he says, we want you to know that we love you and we continue to love you, yet you will never understand these things. That's what he said. The little children in Egypt, they get little Coptic crosses tattooed on their wrists. Yes, children get tattoos in Egypt. Little Coptic crosses, you want to know why? Because they want the world to know they are not afraid of the resurrected Jesus. They are not afraid of what you will do. And they also want you to know that if their bodies are scattered, their lives are taken, that you'll see this Coptic cross on their wrist and give them a Christian burial. See, they believe in the resurrected Jesus. See, I see that as a living hope. See, we see living hope when the church decides that no one deserves to be abandoned. No one deserves to be marginalized. No one deserves to be left alone. And when the church goes out into those margins, doesn't just expect them to come, but goes out into those margins of society and welcomes them in, we see there a living hope. We see a living hope when we see the, the man and woman who's lost their spouse to death, who relieves because their spouse was in Christ, will one day be reunited with them. We see a living hope. We see a living hope when we see the church entering into the suffering, not running from the suffering. See, Christianity is supposed to be the only religion in the world that runs into suffering because we have a Jesus who, in his suffering, overcame suffering and says we can too. It doesn't mean we'll be immune. We don't have to be defined. See, then when we see that, we see a living hope. We see a living hope when someone feels as though that there is nothing they could ever do to gain God's favor and love, and yet they come to a place and realize that all they needed to do was believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then they find favor and love. We see, we see a living hope. See, I see a living hope every time I look in the mirror because I know every drug I've taken. I know every drink I've drank. I know every wild night I wasted. I know every terrible word I have said. I know everything I've ever stolen. 
And yet I know that Jesus loves me, even me. And I see a living hope. See, the resurrection is an interruption of living hope. And we as people of the resurrection believe. We believe that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has opened the door of His heaven, of His kingdom to any and all who would turn to Him as Lord. Any and all. The doors are swung open. Where society wants to shut doors and, 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 and even convince us to lock them, Jesus, through resurrection, opens them and says to you and says to me that there is nothing you have ever done nor anything you could ever do that could keep God from loving you. He doesn't love you as you should be because you'll never who you be who you should be. He loves you just as you are. Not as you should be. But He loves you too, too, too much to leave you as you are. And through His Holy Spirit, because Jesus is risen, He wants to help you become who you can be. But you got to choose to give away the dead hopes that you're living for and choose the living hope that comes through the resurrected King Jesus. Many of us are pursuing the dead hope. You know, the new jobs or the new significant others or the new things. Or maybe we used to know Jesus and the church did a good job modeling dead hope herself we decided that maybe this resurrection isn't as true. See, when I ever get tempted to think of that, I look at my brother Brad, I look at, look at my sister Robin, I look at brother Adam, Sam, I look, I look at us. I gather with us. And I remember this even of itself is an expression of living hope because only God could bring together what's here. Only God could make sense out of what we see. See, maybe some of you are here and you wonder if God can love you. Well, see, the thing about the risen Jesus is He demonstrates that God has the power, the absolute stubborn conviction to love with a love that is without caution or restraint. God loves with a love that loves without boundaries or limits. God loves with a love that loves beyond a person's inadequacies or failures. He loves beyond worthiness and unworthiness. He loves. And He came for you and He came for me. He came for all of us. And I know that many of us got up this morning and we put on our Easter clothes. Y'all look real nice. And we interrupted our week, we interrupted our morning to come and do what we know to do. See, God, through the resurrected Jesus, is always trying to interrupt our lives to help us see that there's a living hope to live for and to live with, not the dead hopes that we organize our lives around all too often. And you know what? It's, it's a living hope that takes jacked up people like me and does something with them. It's a living hope that reminds us that Jesus came for the liars and thieves, the ashamed and those who don't believe. He came for me, for you. 
It's a living hope that reminds us that Jesus came for the rich, the poor, the powerless, and the divorced. It's a, it's a living hope that reminds us he came for the broken, the addicted, the left out, and those who've been afflicted by this broken world. It, it reminds us that the resurrected Jesus has come for the murderer, the immigrant, the racist, and the hypocrite. He's come for the wounded, the confused, the abandoned, and the abused, and he's not leaving any of us behind because he's risen, and you're here, and he's calling. And he's inviting you. He's inviting me. He's inviting us. See, we are the people of the resurrection, a people who believe that the founder and teacher of our faith, the God made flesh, who was crucified and is now risen and reigns as Lord while he walked among us, while he walked among us, ate and drank and laughed and loved the people that society said weren't worthy to eat with, weren't worthy to drink with, weren't worthy to laugh with, and certainly weren't worthy to love. This is what Jesus did. This is what he does. That's the thing. It's not just what he used to do. It's what the risen Lord does. Because in the scripture, see, he said, before he was risen, he said, I, when I come and the kingdom is broken in, I'm going to take this bread and cup with you again. That's what he said in Luke. He said, when, when, when the kingdom comes, when my rule and reign is then men made available to everybody, anybody, he says, I'm going to gather with you when you gather at the table in a very particular kind of way, in a little thing we call faith. And he says, I'm going to gather with you and I'm going to take this bread that is my body and this cup that is my blood. I'm going to host you at my table, is what he says. And see, what I love about this table is this table in and of itself is a sign and a symbol that points to something. See, because Jesus taught us about this great big party that's going to happen when Jesus returns. There's going to be a different kind of table. He called it a banquet. But I got to tell you, contrary to what you see in a lot of Christians, I think God likes to party. Because he tells us that heaven ain't going to be some place where we wear like diapers and fly around like cupids and shoot bows and arrows at people. I don't know what that is. It's going to be this sort of, this, some, somehow there's going to be some party to this because he says that there's this feast that awaits. And so as a symbol, as something that points to that feast that awaits, every week the Christian gathers, we gather around this table to feast around the life of the risen one to remember that there's a feast to come. And no matter what kind of hell this world offers us the other six days of the week, there's a party that's going on. And life doesn't feel like it. Do you know what I love about this table? is that there's no prerequisite to this table. There's just Jesus. There's no getting my stuff right before I come to meet Jesus. There's no, he takes you just as you are. He's just going to clean you up a bit. It's his table, not mine, and you and I don't get to choose who sits there. And he invites all to come. So to all of you who keep company with Jesus, no matter how great you are at that, whatever that may mean, Let your mourning be interrupted with a living hope that says, the Lord who is risen welcomes you into his life. But you need to know that when you come into his life, you won't leave the same if you really tend to the love that God has given in Jesus. It, it, it has to mess with you a little bit. So don't be surprised then when the resurrection keeps interrupting your life, when Jesus says to you, 
whether it be through one of God's people or through the Spirit or through Scripture or through some prayer or through some song or through just a beautiful sunny day says to you, eh, that's a dead hope. Don't organize around that. That's a dead hope. But there's a living hope. And all are welcomed into the living hope. Because you know, bombs are still going to go off. Hunger is still going to pervade. Disappointment is still going to take place. Lives are still going to radically change. But Jesus is an anchor that is certain. Because we know that in Jesus, God took on the worst this world had to offer in all of its violence. Said, bring it to me. And he took it on himself. And overturned the power of humanity through the power of resurrection, which becomes our living hope to know that there is no power on earth or even in the places, the spiritual realms that could pluck us out of the hands of Jesus. There's a bloodstained cross, an empty tomb that will always stand as a proclamation that there will always be a living hope. And so we hear Peter then, right? We hear Peter when he says, set your minds completely then. Set your minds completely then on that hope. And every week we gather We come to this table to set our minds on that hope.